Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canadians narrowly miss a federal election. But is there one on the horizon? Trump and Biden have their final debate. Will anyone come out alive? And the Pope is talking about civil same-sex unions. Is this a game changer? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. So we are not heading into a federal election during COVID-19. Oh no, no Easter, no Thanksgiving, no Halloween, and no election? I'm living in hell! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, he's in hell all right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Uh, lots to chatter about today. Uh, coming off the heels of uh, an almost call for an election and right into a uh, presidential debate. It should be... <laughs> It should be an interesting day. All right. The liberal, uh, liberal government survived uh, again with the assistance of the NDP and uh, a confidence vote. It started really as uh, just uh, wanting a committee, although calling it an anti-corruption committee. You can see how that's a little uh, forward. Uh, but that being said, a, a committee to study all of what's going on and somehow that turned into uh, a confidence vote and the NDP uh, siding with the liberals uh, in order to simply avoid an election, putting them in a very precarious spot as well. Uh, Jagmeet Singh saying um, he's not going to give uh, the prime minister the election that he is asking for. So uh, that being said, the heat seems to be turned up uh, again today to talk more about this. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Hope you are too, Scott. Your thoughts on what happened yesterday and how this all transpired. Again, at the end of the day, we still have answers to questions in regarding the Wee scandal that have not been answered. But I guess the good news, we're not going to an election. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Look, the whole thing, quite frankly, transpired simply because the Liberals did not want to continue to engage about the Wee charity scandal. That's really why this happened. Obviously, you can invite, and maybe you already have, I don't know, maybe you can invite any Liberal pundit, liberal commentator, liberal politician, and they'll tell you that the reason for it is because, well, there'll be a litany of reasons. One, we have to deal primarily with COVID-19. Everything else doesn't matter. Or two, the conservatives are doing this as an election ploy. They're trying to put it out as a dangling carrot to put the country into the throes of an election or whatnot. The fact is very simple. Justin Trudeau's popularity numbers and the liberal government's popularity numbers went down. In Trudeau's case, dramatically, the Liberals, to some degree, because the Wee Charity scandal heated up. And there were a lot of questions about whether, well, we knew the people who were involved. We know that, obviously, Justin Trudeau's mother, Margaret, was paid an enormous amount of money for things. We've discovered that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, his wife, was paid for one event, about $1,500, and then there was another twenty-three to 24000 roughly, on top of it which included travel expenses, I would imagine accommodation, and so forth. We also know that former finance minister Bill Morneau was, had some involvement directly because his two daughters were aligned with We Charity and had been paid in various capacities. 
and we've seen the whole, you know, a whole rigmarole with We Charities controversy of creating a shell company which handled certain things. The fact that they hold an enormous amount of real estate, problems internationally, which have been discussed by major news organizations, the, the left-wing media site Candleland, and various others. When you put all that together, of course they wanted distraction. Of course they wanted to go away. And when the Conservatives came out and suggested that there should be a committee or subcommittee to look directly into these, ha- these handlings, the way that this government handles things, and presumably other controversies that will pop up, because this is not the only thing, ladies and gentlemen, that the Liberals have been involved with that was controversial. You know, we've had quite a number of things, including the AgaCon and whatnot. Well, NSC Lovelin being another big one. And if you put all of them together, plus We Charity, you've got to start to wonder. And it's amazing to me that Justin Trudeau currently sits, Scott, with an approval rating of over 50%. I think it's about 51.5%, based on the way he's been handling things with COVID-19. Well, of course it's going to be high because he's been giving money to people directly, obviously for a lot of good reasons to keep businesses afloat you know people you know people's lives have obviously been affected their paychecks have been affected we get that but the spending has been unbelievable a possible deficit of up to 432 billion dollars and trust me at the end of this fiscal year it will be higher it has to be higher especially with extensions such as things as well sir being moved into a second ei program and whatnot there is this so much going on, so much swirling, that of course the government wanted to shut down the We Charity scandal. They've had enough. They're getting frustrated with getting hammered over the head, a virtual hammer, over and over again. But, you know, it's interesting. The opposition parties, in theory, all believe that this committee should be created to investigate the Liberals' involvement in the We Charity scandal and money that could have been potentially spent and other matters. But at the same time, as we saw via the vote, which was a, I believe the amendment, the conservative amendment that went into a a vote of confidence was defeated by a number of 181 to 143. We saw very briefly, we saw the Green Party align with the Liberals initially, which basically meant that it wasn't going to go anywhere. And then the NDP, who claimed they didn't want to have an election for Canadians, they were going to defend Canadians, but wouldn't say what their position was until after the Greens had already decided via consensus that they were going to stand with the Liberals, it was defeated. So this is something that certainly Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, and to a lesser degree, the Bloc Québécois, can look at it as a dividing line between the way certain parties look at this scandal and the way other parties look at it too. And it's kind of an interesting little endpoint to something that the Liberals feel is going to go away now based on the fact that this committee is gone. But I think they're hard-pressed because the We Charity scandal isn't going anywhere. Uh, obviously, during a pandemic, leaders' uh, numbers do go up, uh, you know, for the reasons that you stated earlier. Uh, is it in the Prime Minister and Liberals' best interest to have an election, the sooner the better, while those numbers remain high? Uh, out of all of the parties, would it not be that party that wants an election the most? Yeah, I mean, in theory, it should be, and you're right. There would be a benefit to the Liberals going early. That's quite frankly why they played that game of political chicken yesterday, because I don't think it really mattered to them. Obviously, they want to avoid an election because there's a cost incurred. You know, there's always the possibility that controversy and scandal will follow you, even things that you don't know about. 
you could have problems with candidates, the leader could trip up, you know, there could be mistakes made during a debate, during a campaign rally, although obviously during COVID-19, they would be very, very small, meeting with people in a riding, uh, speaking with uh, the business leaders, political leaders, etc. There's lots of things that could potentially happen. But yeah, right now, the Trudeau Liberals would be better off having an early election, just because poll numbers seem to be in their favor. At the same time, the Conservatives and the Bloc Québécois and anyone else behind the scenes who may have voted with the Liberals this time around but know what could potentially happen in 6 to 12 months, the tally or the economic tally, the amount of money that's been spent, that being taxpayer dollars, is going to steadily increase. Not because I'm saying it, not because anybody's saying it, because it's just going to naturally happen because there has been an enormous amount of spending to date, and there will be more spending as time goes along. Ergo, it's better to have an early election than a later election, but the Liberals have decided to take a gamble. They still believe that Trudeau's popularity as he hands out money to help businesses and individuals will still benefit him to some degree. They're obviously going to try to slough off the overall deficit, any debts that we incur, they will obviously emphasize more about the throne speech and whatever the budget comes out to and whatever God knows that amount's going to be, which we still don't know. We still don't know how much that throne speech is going to cost us, Scott. I mean, that is, that's astonishing. I have never seen a conservative or liberal government in the past hold on to figures so tightly. And you know why? Because it's going to be enormous. It has yeah. to be. The things they were calling for are going to be Spending, I, I hate to use sort of a Trumpian mode here, it's going to be spending like we've never seen before. <laughs> it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. Now, it doesn't mean that people are necessarily going to change their position. It doesn't mean that people are going to hop off the liberal train if they've supported him two times in the past in via federal elections and then leave. But it really should give people pause why all of this happened yesterday and what's going to happen going forward. It's really problematic, and all I can say is, if you want to continue to have the wool pulled over your eyes, you'll continue to do so. It's all very obvious in front of you what is happening now, what happened yesterday, and what's going to happen tomorrow. It's it's just... So, uh, can we get answers to these questions without the threat of an election? Will we find the answers to the questions that, that people are looking for? Well, that's a very fair comment, and the answer is, I don't know. And, and the reason for that is, the, some things will dribble out. You and I both know that. That always happens. People, unfortunately, loose lips sink ships, as they say, and people talk, people chatter. And some of these things will also become more clear as time goes along. You know, if the deficit is much larger, we'll know about it. The liberals try to hide it during COVID-19 until the opposition parties finally demanded transparency, and then we got the number. But it will obviously go up. At some point in time, I think, we'll know how much the throne speech, ergo the budget, is going to cost us. And that amount has to be added in and play. And with We Charity, no matter how many times they try to shut down committees, hide things, etc., you know, the press, be it the mainstream press, alternative press, TV, radio, print, it, it doesn't matter. Everyone will eventually get a beat on it, and they will find out more about it, because it's all out there. Again, you have to have, obviously, good investigative journalists to go through a lot of this or parse the information, but Canada has plenty of them, so they will continue to look into it. 
So, yes, a lot of this will come out. And whether or not it's discussed in the House of Commons or in committee or off of Parliament Hill, we will find out. How do you think uh, what has happened yesterday or in the last 24 hours is playing with the average Canadian? Well, you know, in some senses, uh, to be fair, a lot of Canadians don't pay very strict attention. The only reason they really sort of focused on it to some extent and maybe you gather this based on conversations you've had or callers who've called into your radio station and others and other mediums, um, I think they only started to pay attention to it because there was a, a small possibility that an election could be called. Most of us, including me, predicted it wasn't going to happen because in the end, the, the smaller parties, that being either the NDP, the Greens, whomever, would have aligned with the Liberals for a variety of reasons. Either they don't have the money, they don't have the influence, they're fearful they could lose seats and influence in a new parliament. Ergo, it's just not the time right now. Plus, they also know that a lot of Canadians would prefer not to go to the polls, although there are some Canadians who would be more than happy to. I think if push came to shove, most people would prefer to just sit at home and deal with the, well... Quite frankly, in my opinion, the travesty that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are presenting us on a daily basis. But yeah, I mean, look, I, it, it's an interesting circumstance right now. It's a, it's a fascinating period of time in Canadian politics. It all seems to be fascinating in its own way. But in the grand scheme of things, a lot of what we've seen yesterday, I think people will see it as gamesmanship. They'll see it as a game of political chicken. They might obviously, they may be angry at Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. They may be angry at Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. But as time goes along, because most of our focus is on COVID-19 and ensuring the health and safety of our country, our communities, our households, etc., a lot of this will fall by the wayside probably within a few days' time. Um, uh, with it, it, obviously today these questions are continuing. The Conservatives are continuing to put pressure on uh, the Liberal government. Uh, many said yesterday that the Conservatives overplayed their hand. Are they being uh, too heavy-handed here? Well, I don't think they really overplayed their hand in much the same way that probably the Liberals outplayed them a little bit yesterday. I mean, to, to, make, to make the whole thing a, a vote of confidence, which is extremely unusual if you go through the history of Canadian politics, there's very few examples where a a government, a federal government, tries to basically defeat itself. Of course, it has happened. There have been attempts at it, especially in a minority government situation. I mean, the, the nature of a government or a leader is to get out of it and get into a majority as fast as possible. So you you control the narrative and you control day to day operations again. Um. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough to know. It's tough to say. I think that people certainly one way. If I can pivot a little bit, I think they're going to get fed up with this if this happens on a regular basis. And I think this is what they're fearful of. There are already some news articles, and maybe you've seen it, that the conservatives may get frustrated about another motion and maybe issue yet another yeah. amendment or something else that could trigger yet another vote of confidence. Now, this is cyclical, and it and obviously happens in a minority government where certain issues can be placed into a matter of confidence, depending on how important they are, or a lack of importance that the federal government or Ottawa decides to make more important. Um, I think that's the real problem, that with a minority government, these are 
part of the machinations, and sometimes we forget about them. You know, when my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, had two straight minority governments, yeah, the threat of falling obviously always, always existed, and we know about the coup d'etat that nearly happened in 2008, where the opposition parties nearly toppled them. Um, but at the same time, generally speaking, I think people forget a lot, because there have been a lot of majorities as of late in Canadian politics, that the role of a minority government is always very tenuous. In fact, Justin Trudeau even said that himself in Parliament, stating that a minority government can fall at any time. That's quite correct. I agree. It can. I think people are just going to be worried and nervous, though, when the focus should be more on COVID-19, if this sort of gamesmanship just happens on a regular basis. Not necessarily daily or weekly, but regular. And that's Mm. going to be, I think, for both the federal liberal government for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative government, uh, Conservative Party, that's going to obviously be things they'll be fearful of. But look, I think that everyone obviously is going to be hard on everybody. You know, Justin Trudeau played a role in this. Aaron O'Toole played a role in this. Jagmeet Singh played a role in this by not showing his hand until the very end when it was, wasn't really even necessary to. He put all of that together. All it does is make people more cynical of politics, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. And I think that's the thing that's the worst component of all this, because that's not going to stop. In fact, if anything, that'll just continue to teeter. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. As always, Michael, thanks for the time. Uh, be well this weekend. You too. Take care. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thanks for your time. I hope you're doing well. The second time in week 32, Scott, I hear you having references since I called you out on it the other day. Is that true? It is very true. Did Will tell you that? He's, you know what? He shares info with me. Now, don't burn him. Don't no, burn I'm him. not going to burn him. I don't have to burn him. You already did. <laughs> <laughs> he said it no, was okay. He said it was no. okay to give you a poke on that one. Well, that's, you know, that's cool. You can mention it. You can mention it all you want. And, you know, we'll pr- we pretty much call you every week anyway. So what the heck? Uh, your thoughts on what transpired yesterday and where we ended up? Well, on the whole, it was just, well, two things. On the whole, it was silly, but silly is the nature sometimes of minority parliaments. We'd forgotten about that because we hadn't had one for over a decade, uh, as you know. Uh, I don't think any of the parties really did themselves any great service yesterday in explaining the rationale. But for me, what is interesting is it may accelerate um, the pressure on the NDP to be less complicit in supporting the Liberals as more confidence motions come, because their explanation, Scott, that they were, you know, doing this for the people, yet in the end people see them voting with the Liberal government, is a little hard to take, I think. Uh, do, do Canadians understand all of this? Because obviously um, people are trying to figure out what side this is all they are on and, and what side everyone else is on. Uh, there's NDP leader Jagmeet Singh speaking out against the uh, prime minister and not wanting to be upon in his election and then votes for him. Uh, just the, the optics of all of this. Is it too hard for the average Canadian to figure out or do they even want to? Yeah, I, look, I, I, I think it is. I, look, I think he's right. People don't want an election, and there may have been another way for him to do that by abstaining from uh, from voting, and that could have made it a little bit closer. But, you know, it, it's just tr- the trustworthiness with politicians, as we know, is at a low level anyway. 
And uh, it just looked like the NDP were also acting a little bit in their own interest because, as we know, the NDP don't have the funds and the ability to go back to the electorate. Now, Trudeau shouldn't have put people in this place anyway that he made it a confidence motion. So he was playing a game of chicken. And the Conservatives themselves and, and the other opposition parties, well, they're right, and they should keep up the press for pressure for accountability. Calling this thing initially the anti-corruption committee, well, that was partisan gamesmanship. I guess what it does—that was a little about, over the top. Was that was a little over the top, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little over the top. But if it, it tells me anything, it looks like we're returning to politics as normal, despite all of them saying we need to focus on the pandemic. Because this was the kind of stuff that happened in the last two minorities we had before this one. Now, will we get or can we get answers to these questions without the threat of another election? Will we get answers to these questions anyway? I doubt it, uh, unless it comes through the media. I I think, look, uh, the committees are going to try, but they'll either have document dumps and and or the continued filibustering. Um, You will probably get some more nuggets of information. Um, you know, again, the liberal calculation here is that in the end, and they may be right on this, I, that they have been so far, though they're clumsy in the way they do it, and they bring the spotlight back on themselves, but their calculation is this isn't going to be germane to the average voter. Yeah, conservative voters, they eat this all up, but they're not going to vote for us anyway. The rest are going to evaluate us on other things and not this. That's the way they're playing the game. So I don't imagine they're going to have a newfound um uh, seeing of the light, if you will, and say, here uh, here are all the documents you need. We're happy to answer any question at any time. Don't think that's going to happen. So what should the liberals do? How should they play this? Uh, obviously, another self-inflicted wound. It's clear they don't want us to find out more. They prorogue government for it. They almost had an election because of it. Uh, is this all worth it? I mean, is, 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 can you just not throw something out and appease people and move on? I mean, it just seems that the, the medicine is, is worse than the illness here. Well, I guess there's stuff, you know, it's hard to believe that there isn't something further in there that it would at least be embarrassing. Maybe it's not entirely inappropriate or wrong or criminal, but there are clearly things in there they figure if they throw out would be more embarrassing. So they're thinking is if I throw them out, then, uh, then, then there'll be stories that'll continue for another two or three weeks. So they're, they're worried about the math on all of that, and that's what the opposition is trying to get them on. So I think they're gonna, they're, their calculation is we'll continue to resist this. I think what they'll try and do, Scott, uh, leading into what will likely be our next significant confidence motion and, and when the uh, economic statement comes down sometime next month, is you know use the economic statement as a distraction uh, and say, here, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Are you with us or against us? And if they're feeling really bullish... They might make it difficult for the NDP to support them and and try and go to the polls in in November. I don't know that they're quite there, but watching how they behave over the next number of weeks will perhaps give us some indication of where they're going to go with that next big confidence vote later in the fall. The longer the minority government drags out, who does it benefit? Who, Who benefits from it? Who doesn't? Well, look, again, getting to the practical side of this, Aaron O'Toole needs more time to introduce himself to Canadians. Um, and it, the longer the government exists and they can continue from their perspective to embarrass or challenge the, uh, the liberals, that's good for them. The NDP probably still of the view they can extract some things from the liberals, so they think that will be good for them. I think the liberals are 
coming to the conclusion that maybe the government's life should be uh, shorter rather than, than longer. Um, but does that mean they look to push the thing down in November or do they wait till their budget in, uh, in, the, uh, in the new year to do all of that? So I, I, I think shorter is maybe better for the Liberals if they can make the fa- frame about the pandemic and what they've done. But if it becomes about entitlement and liberal bad behavior, which is what the opposition wanted to be about, that benefits uh, the opposition and hurts the liberals. How do you think Canadians are viewing what has happened in the last two days? They're probably not viewing it, to be honest. Uh, And what they've heard of it, they're probably, unless they're a dedicated partisan, uh, they're probably throwing their hands up in the air and saying, really, you know, I'm concerned about my kids in school or my kid was playing hockey and now I'm hearing reports there's transmission of COVID-19 in hockey. I think they're, most Canadians are still concerned about COVID and its impact on their daily lives, not politicians playing partisan games that really seem to suggest they are more interested in their outcomes than the public they represent. Bingo. Uh, Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director at Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well on, uh, hang on, i got to look, week, week number 32. Week, thir- week 32. I'll be ready for week 33 if you need you're, me, okay? You're, cal- you're the new calendar boy. Here we go. This will be great. Hey, well, I'm no pinup boy, I'll tell you that. All right. <laughs> thanks, thanks so Tim. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, as I mentioned, Trump versus Biden tonight. Uh, there will be a mute button in place. So uh, the first two minutes when they each get to speak, uh, the first two minutes on uh, a specific topic, that will uh, they will not be interrupted. And then after that, they open it up and uh, the debate uh, will ensue. Let's bring in Ryan Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Ryan. Hope you're doing well. No problem. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Appreciate this. Before we get to the actual debate, uh, talk a little bit about Hunter Biden. We keep hearing the story coming up. Uh, is this something that the U.S. press has been ignoring? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think if they've been ignoring it, they haven't done a very good job of suppressing the story because I think that through a variety of ways, it has become more prominent over time. And I think strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, the story was more about the attempt to quash the story at first, when it first attempts to uh, share the New York Post story through Twitter and Facebook were uh, shut down at first, and eventually Twitter backed down. So I think in some ways what really disturbed people at first was the fact that media companies like Twitter were sort of intervening into the election. And Part of the problem, just to be frank about it, is there is concern that different standards of evidence are being used for stories about Trump as opposed to stories about Biden. So I think that that was the initial thrust of the story. Beyond that, we're, you know, in the usual, you know, situation where there's a lot of uncertainty about the underlying factual claims. You know, what exactly did Biden do? When did he do it? And crucially, of course, to what extent was Joe Biden aware of any of this? Or in any, is there any sense in which he benefited from it? Those things are incredibly difficult to evaluate. And frankly, people are going to use different standards of evaluation. So um, I don't think that the story, uh, whether it, it has been deliberately suppressed or not, is I think there's a reason people think that. But it's entered the public sphere now. It's more difficult to say what kind of an impact it's going to have. I think that... Um, you know, Trump is not necessarily best positioned to, you know, make an argument 
based on the problems of corruption and financial self-dealing and so on and so forth. Uh, but we will see. I mean, uh, over the next week, perhaps we'll reach a point where the Biden the Biden campaign can no longer maintain plausible deniability, or we'll reach a point where some of the accusations are shown to be baseless. So, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the allegations are that he was selling access to the vice president. Basically, is that is that is there any is there any accuracy there? Uh, in essence, yes, that's the basis of the claim, which is that through a variety of mechanisms and a variety of places, Hunter Biden was using his family connection to the president to essentially enrich himself. Right. And where you're so that that seems to have happened. Right. And those reports uh, going back to a New York Times story, I believe it was over more than a year and a half ago, which raised suspicions about it. Excuse me, it was a New Yorker story. These are things that have been part of mainstream coverage of Hunter Biden for a while. So now there's several ways to think about this. The fact that he is using this family connections to enrich himself does not necessarily implicate Biden in any illegal actions. It's not clear how it might have affected policy, though, frankly, you know, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. And it sort of opens up a broader issue of the various ways in which politicians from across the political spectrum uh, are able to use their uh, their uh, political positions to enrich themselves and their families. So, I mean, I think this is an issue that can work for Trump in the sense that um, a lot of his success has been based upon the notion of the swamp, right? The notion of an elite political class, both parties, who are essentially prioritizing their own interests. Um, Does this issue, though, in regard to, obviously unethical if these allegations are true, but does this have any significant impact compared to what we've seen in the last four years or so? Uh, Frankly, I think these kinds of last-minute October surprises are mostly outweighed by people's sense of how the administration has performed or really their underlying party allegiances, right? I don't, this might be a tipping point for some small number of votes, but I'm of the opinion that for the most part, elections are are finished, you know, by the time you reach this point, and these last minute events are only going to move a small number of votes. Can that matter in some circumstances? Sure. I mean, Florida in 2000, where it's decided by a relatively small number of votes, of course. Um, but I think that in, in some ways, the election is probably already decided. We just don't know what the outcome is yet, right? That's not something that's revealed until, until election day. Um, so, so what are you, ex- so what are you, ahead. so, uh, what are you expecting tonight in regard to the debate? We certainly know what we saw the first time. Obviously, a mute button has been in place to allow them to get their two minute points out each first, and then the debate starts and the mics are open. Will we see a different approach from the president this time? that's an interesting question. I mean, I have to try to differentiate in my mind what I think would make strategic sense and what I think the president will actually do. So it seems to me it's possible he's got it in his mind that this corruption issue is the theme that will get him over the edge, I guess you could say, or get him across the finish line to use a better a better metaphor. So the, I think in his mind, the idea would be one of his advantages against Clinton in 2016 was the sense that Clinton was part of this corrupt political class and she was willing to bend the rules for her own advantage and so on and so forth. And Biden has an advantage because he, is, he does not have that reputation in quite the same way. So therefore, if you can make it appear as if Biden, if Biden talks a good game, 
but in fact has been part of the same kind of political shenanigans that others in the political class have been part of, that this might give Trump some kind of crucial advantage. I don't think that's, it's hard to evaluate whether or not that's going to be what I expect to see. I think he's going to try to turn it in that direction. He's going to try to turn the conversation in that direction. Try to find the conversation for the issues that he think will give him this last minute. Uh, many were, uh, I'm not sure if we've lost you here, uh, Ryan, or not, but many um, many just could not anticipate what would happen uh, during the debate, during the last one. You know, I guess people knew it was going to be aggressive, but again, it, 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 sometimes things just turn on such a on such an axis, you just do not see them coming. Are we going to expect that again tonight? In other words, we can sit here and try to predict what's, what's, what's going to happen, but in the end, we're going to be T-boned somehow? Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, in my mind, it seems as if Trump needs to uh, needs to not have such an aggressive approach. It seems as if that was not gaining him anything. It seems as if the kinds of voters who are sitting on the fence, that's probably what not is that's not going to move them one one direction toward and in the direction of Trump. Um, but Trump might have a very different idea. Right. He might have a very different idea that. The undecided voters are the ones who are, in fact, going to be moved by this show of aggression and dominance. And uh, we won't know. I suppose that there's some there's some plausibility to that. But uh, it does seem to me that the uh, the the effect from the first debate was not what he expected. Ryan Hurl has been with us, assistant professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Ryan, thank you for the time. Stay well. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Uh, Before we get into the debate, how much uh, play is the Hunter Biden story getting in the United States? Many have accused the U.S. media of ignoring this story. How is this playing down there? Well, I mean, the people that are accusing the media of ignoring this story are the people that the people who originally pushed this story are trying to go after. There is no reputable uh, uh, journalistic organization that has corroborated any evidence from this story at all. It's been heavily pushed by right wing networks uh, and by people who are heavily involved in conspiracy theories and people very attached to the Trump campaign. Uh, so the, the, the reason that it's being pushed back on is simply because there are no facts to be able to uh, back any of this story up and, and bringing it into the public sphere simply lends oxygen to something uh, that may simply not exist. Do you see this being a topic uh, coming up tonight? Will Trump bring this up? Well, I mean, we've heard from sources close to the White House that the president does intend to bring this up uh, because, again, it's an attempt to directly speak to the base. The problem is is that there is a growing number of people who are moving away from the president. Both national polls and and battleground state polls show that the president uh, is trailing and trying to use this as, as an attack mode against his challenger may not do anything to uh, draw any of those undecideds that are that are left in the country to his base. It may simply work to shore up the base that's underneath him. Uh, and at a time when the president needs to do anything he can to try and beat uh, Biden by winning over swing states, uh, going down the, the path of conspiracy theories simply may not be enough for the president. 
We certainly all know what happened uh, last time, and, and a lot of people were really taken back by that. Will there be any surprises tonight, or will the surprise be that maybe Trump backs off and lets Biden speak and, and create his own problems? Well, look, anything can happen during a debate. Uh, you know, it simply is, is a, a fact of how each of the candidates on stage uh, interpret the questions and decide to either, you know, avoid answering or kind of dive into legislation and policy uh, uh, conversations. You know, we saw the kind of first debate break down. The moderator, Chris Wallace, wasn't able to control things. President Trump dominated w- with his interruptions. Now that there's a mute button, at least for the first two minutes of each segment, you will be uh, able to kind of grasp onto two minutes of each of the candidates kind of with an uninterrupted uh, path in front of them. But there's still going to be an hour plus of debate tonight where interruptions are, are going to going to kind of uh, be the name of the game. President Trump has done no debate prep. In the lead up to tonight's debate, Joe Biden has done the last five days of debate prep. That could be very well seen in how each of them respond tonight to the uh, to the questions asked. Does any amount of debate prep prepare you for going up against Donald Trump? Because it seems that, you know, it's like being in a conversation with someone you just do not expect them to come at you with the words that they do. How do you prepare for that? I mean, look, Joe Biden has a team around him uh, where people sub in for President Trump. They sub in for other people to try and uh, figure out ways to, you know, get around the messaging. But Donald Trump's uh, kind of motive is to get under the skin of the challenger that is standing next to him. He did that with Hillary Clinton by moving around the stage and standing behind her. He did that with Joe Biden during the first debate, A, by interrupting him uh, and kind of undercutting his his 40 plus years uh, in politics but be also by going after Joe Biden's family. This is something that is key and, and the most important thing above politics to Joe Biden, his wife and his children. Uh, and for the president to, to use that as an attack, uh, that is what set Joe Biden off. That is when we saw him become his most fiery in the last debate. And if Donald Trump decides to go down that path again tonight, you could see uh, you know, Joe Biden kind of backed into a corner, forced to go on the defense. Uh, we're hearing now stories uh, Russian and Iran appearing in uh, US, U.S. election. There's there's intelligence uh, surrounding this. What can you tell us about this story? Well, there's very few details that were released after this very, very quickly called press conference last night where the director of national intelligence said that Iran has uh, sowing uh, kind of uncertainty into this election by obtaining public information from voter databases and using that to email people who uh, were apparently voting Democrats using uh, the name Proud Boys to say that they were going to come after those people if they don't uh, kind of switch to the Republican registration list and vote for Donald Trump. Uh, You know, we're hearing that this purportedly started in Iran. We've also been told that Russia uh, has some kind of hand in election interference as well, but they didn't give the information on that. What was curious last night was that the director of national intelligence, who is an ally of the president, said that the uh, the undermining efforts right now are an attempt to attack and target President Trump, which simply doesn't make sense because these attacks were going after Democrats that would kind of stop Democrats from going uh, and voting. So what we saw last night was the kind of uh, insertion of partisan politics in, in something that really affects a bipartisan part of the country. Uh, we remember last time uh, with uh, the president almost inviting Russia to to get involved. Will we hear that sort of rhetoric this time, do you think, especially with what's come forth last night? 
Well, I mean, it's possible. Look, they, they went in, they gave a deep dive, intelligence officials, about what Iran was doing, but they didn't give any information at all about what Russia was doing, even though there has been chatter for, for weeks, if not months and years, that, that Russia continues to interfere, uh, both with the last set of midterms two years ago and with the election uh, that's currently underway now and set to go 12 days from now. It, will the president speak out against that? It, it, it's, it's possible, but we've also seen the president kind of push back on any chance that Russia is interfering with the elections. What was also important last night, however, was the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who obviously has been caught in the crossfires with President Trump over the last several years, uh, put himself on the line by saying, look, people are going to say that this election is going to be rigged and people are going to try to interfere with it. Uh, Take that with a dose of skepticism. And essentially what he was saying was don't listen when people say that the election is going to be rigged against them. Kind of a hit back at President Trump. Uh, Russia, Iran, where does China fit into this picture? Uh, it came out uh, a few days ago that Trump has Russia or, or money or uh, issues tied to China financially. Yeah, so the, the, the New York Times reporting that the president has, has a bank account that is in China uh, and that it was being used to try and get business when he was trying to open up buildings there or licensing agreements. Uh, you know, this was pushed back on by uh, former President Barack Obama last night saying, look, if I had a Chinese bank account, they quote unquote would be calling me Beijing Barry. Yet President yeah. Trump is essentially just letting this slide and his legal team uh, are simply not answering any kind of questions based to it. But what that what the reports show is that if it is true and, and if, if the numbers that we're seeing are accurate, President Trump would have paid more in taxes to the Chinese government than he would have to Uncle Sam, and it simply just raises more questions to the president's finances, to where the president has, has financial ties, and whether or not that could play any kind of influence on the president if, in fact, he is reelected on November 3rd. You brought up a valid point, which we've, we've heard start to surface, that he's paid more taxes in China than in the United States. Can we expect to hear that during the, the debate tonight? Well, look, it's possible. Foreign policy is not really something that's on the deck for tonight. No. National security is. And if national security, uh, rather, if Joe Biden kind of latches onto that and tries to bring the president's finances into the situation, uh, it's hard for the president to try and defend it because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, much like every other presidential campaign before them, have laid all of their finances out. And what's also worth pointing out here is if the president tries to go after Hunter Biden uh, with these uh, you know, unproven stories that money was transferred out of China's hands and then eventually wound its way into Joe Biden's pockets, none of his financial disclosures over the last several years show any kind of, uh, of massive payment that would have come from the Chinese government. So there are kind of cases for Joe Biden to back himself up, but it makes a very difficult argument for President Trump when he's been so uh, uh, less than forthcoming on talking about his finances. What will happen tonight in regard to fact-checking? I mean, I was watching clips of uh, the 60-minute interview, which is obviously going to come out this weekend with Leslie Stahl, and obviously that, that interview broke up early. Uh, and, and during the clips I saw, uh, she was constantly questioning the president and saying, well, where are you getting that? That's not true. What about the fact-checking side of all of this tonight? Well, look, journalists, fact check. I mean, we I can sit in my living room and fact check the president as he says things, because a lot of times the president is repeating things that he has said frequently over the last four years. And it's easy to pick up on key words and be able to kind of point back to a situation that is or isn't true based on what the president uh, is saying. There's a chance here that Kristen Welker, the moderator from NBC News, may also try to fact check the president. She is a White House correspondent. She's traveled with the president for the last four years. So there will be opportunities for somebody to at least potentially call out the president, even if that is Joe 
Biden. But look, at the end of the day, nobody tuning into this debate tonight is expecting that the president is going to say something new or potentially, you know, be on the line about things that he's refused to answer for the last four years. Uh, and that's why it's not likely that this is going to move the needle much in any direction, especially, uh, you know, when we're this close to the election. Yes, there are undecideds out there. But if you haven't made up your mind right now, watching 90 minutes of, of a debate may not be that thing that brings you over. Hmm. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great night. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting news coming out of the Vatican. Pope Francis has been quoted as saying that he is in support of civil same-sex unions. What does this mean? Uh, is this a different uh, approach than, of course, the cla- uh, Catholic Church? Let's bring in Vincent Miller, Professor Goodorf's Chair in Catholic Theology and Culture, University of Dayton, and is with us now. Vincent, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, Vincent, how significant is this announcement? Well, I think it's 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 very significant. Uh, he's speaking of homosexuals primarily as persons who have rights to relationships and participation in society. Um, so there's there's a shift from a uh, uh, tendency in the church to speak of homosexuality in terms of, of, of certain acts and certain moral acts, and, and, and to focus on persons and rights is different. Um, but it's something that he's clearly, he's been clear about for some time, um, all the way back to 2010, when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Uh, he was trying to negotiate a, uh, a moderate position with the government there, uh, that they would, the Church would support civil unions rather than uh, full same-sex marriage. Um, he wasn't able to get the rest of the bishops of the country to support him on that, uh, but he was very clear on that position, and it was known, you know, uh, when he was chosen for Pope, this would the kind of thing that people were very aware of. Uh, so he's been consistent on this for at least a decade. How does this change things, or does it? Are we just has it just come back into the headlines? Well, I think you know the, the Catholic Church is is a conservative organization with a tradition that reaches back two thousand years. Homosexuality is something that uh, the world has only come to terms with in the past century or so. Before that, we thought of as solely as certain kinds of things people did. Now we know that there are certain kinds of people who have certain kinds of relationships. Uh, so the Church has been wrestling with that. Uh, and in the 70s, the Catholic Church was, was very clear that the, the orientation uh, was not blameworthy, that this was something that was deeply seated in some people, and it shouldn't be judged. Uh, there was a swing back in the 80s to really emphasize the acts and evaluate moral acts and not think about persons as much. And so I think uh, Pope Francis is bringing us back to uh, a fuller vision of this. Um, I'd say there are, there are three big consequences, and, and they are really significant. The first is for LGBT people. Um, they're spoken of as people here with rights. You know, instead of always being told that uh, they're objectively disordered or this is about disordered actions, uh, we're talking about people and people in relationships. And so that is enormously important pastorally uh, in the Catholic Church and for people outside of the Church as well who who hear the Pope's words. Um, second, globally, I think it puts uh, it makes very clear that the Church does not stand with those who are seeking to take rights away from LGBT people. Um, the Church is behind uh, their rights and their need to be defended and participate in society. Um, within the Church, I think the big consequence uh, that we'll have to watch and see how it unfolds uh, is it really gives bishops permission to stop this disastrous policy 
of, of firing church staff um, who are you know who are outed found to be in and um, same-sex relationships. Uh, these are people who contribute greatly to the church in, in teaching and in ministry positions, um, and it's it's a position that's you know caused so much pain. Uh, and now we have the Pope saying that these people have a right to a family, a right to be a part of the community. They should not be cast out. Uh, that's going to be a real challenge to these these policies. How will or does he balance what he has said with the view of the Catholic Church? Does this, is this now the Catholic Church's p- uh, official position on this? Mm-hmm. Well, he is the Pope, um, so this, mm-hmm. is not, this is not a formal teaching moment. Of course, he's giving an interview for a documentary. Uh, he's been very effective at, 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 at using these moments to to communicate a, a broader um, openness uh, in church teaching. Um, he's not contradicting church teaching. He, he so what is he saying that, here, though, Vince? And what is he trying to say? What, what what is he trying to get the church to do here? Is is this a slow, steady process? What's what's his objective here? I I can only speculate on that. I think from the start, you know, from 2010, you know, he 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 is a conservative person. Um, he was opposed to Argentina's proposal for a, a full same-sex marriage law, and he proposed this moderate position, which is. You know, can we have civil unions? The church can support that, um, and right. we still understand marriage to be between a man and a woman. I don't think he's changing any of that. But he is it's just the acceptance and the view of the church of this. Well, I think he, you know, he's saying defending the church's teaching on marriage does not require you to deny rights to LGBTQ people, and that 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 that, dis- that distinction is an important one. That, and mm. and it's it's an argument in the church, right? There are many who think that you know you have to. Uh, actively work against the rights of LGBTQ people um, for, for domestic partnerships. And actually, the church in 2003, uh, not a pope, but a, a Vatican congregation, put out that, that statement. Um, he's clearly challenging that, yes. Uh, he, he wants to say that we can support the rights of LGBTQ people, uh, and that does not impinge upon the church's teaching about the nature of marriage. So this isn't necessarily about full acceptance, but the rights of those individuals. Yeah, but he, he couches it in terms of acceptance, you know, right. that they, they, should, they should not be cast out. Um, I mean, one of the remarkable things about him, I think what distinguishes him as Pope, is he has these conversations with people. Um, and so m- several of them show up in this documentary. You know, one of the most striking one is the Chilean sex abuse survivor, uh, Juan Carlos Cruz, who, who Francis initially uh, challenged his credibility. And uh, Cruz came back at him and said, you've never spoken with me. So they began to speak. And in that conversation, um, you know, he, he accepted Cruz and listened to his pain um, and said to him, you know, God made you gay. God loves you like you are, and you have to love yourself. So he, wow. he enters into these relationships. He, 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 he listens. Um, he, he's not a person. He said from the beginning, you know, abstract ideas are not what Christianity is about. It's about relationships. So he has these relationships. Um, so I think that, you know, that the key point here is that you know, d- defending the church's teaching on marriage does not require you to work against the rights of, of LGBTQ right. people in society. And, 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 and deeper than that, I mean, another exchange he has in the film um, is uh, with a gay Italian Catholic who wrote to him and said, um, you know, should my, should my partner and I take our children to church? Or we won't be welcomed. And he said, you should go to church. You should take your children to church. And you should be perfectly honest with a pastor about your situation, right? You mm. belong. Um, so again, you know, wow. uh, the church's teaching on marriage does not require us to cast out 
uh, homosexual Catholics. They're part of the community, uh, and they need to be welcomed in the community. Are there those within the uh, Catholic organization or Catholic faith who are upset with what he said? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, so this this is the debate. Yeah. I mean, there are many who think the only way you can defend the Church's teaching on on the sanctity of marriage is is to work against LGBTQ rights everywhere, um, and the Pope is challenging that, right? And so the the test is, um, you know, can you see the difference? Uh, you know, does is the Church's teaching on marriage lessened by welcoming people who who don't fit into that? Uh, is there room for them? Um, Christianity, as Francis has said, you know, is is a religion of relationships. It's a religion of communion. This is this is bedrock to what Catholicism is. Um, can that communion welcome people who who fit in different ways? Uh, that's the challenge, I think. Why do you think this is happening now? Why is this coming out now? Is it just a coincidence? Is it just the natural direction of progress here? Why now, Vincent? It's it's hard to say with him. He he's a very savvy communicator. He uses these moments. Uh, very thoughtfully, uh, but you know this this was something that came up in the course of an interview uh, posed by uh, a, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, so, uh, did he have a plan to do it right now? I don't know. I think, I mean, I this is something he said throughout his papacy, though that that reality is more important than abstractions. Um, you know, always attend to uh, relationships. His encyclical that he released just last week. Uh, really was this deep insistence on the importance of, 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 of loving uh, fraternal relations as the, as the essence of Christianity, right? So the, the, the heart of that encyclical uh, is uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The person who, who reaches out in risk, in love for someone who's suffering. Um, so this is, uh, this is the heart of what his papacy is about. He wants always to be reaching out. He wants people always to be open to others. Um, as you mentioned, nothing really new here, and nothing really new here on his perception of this. Um, will this divide the church, though? Will this go? Uh, will this be challenged? Will it go unchallenged? Well, the Catholic Church is divided, as everything else is today. Yeah, right? good point. There are forces that are dividing us across the board. Uh, the forces of, of division are more powerful than ever. Um, so there are many who are openly opposed to Francis, but. But what he says, and I think this encyclical last week really gets to the heart of it, um, you know, are we a religion that welcomes others as brother and sister? That's the heart of what Christianity is about. That's the heart of the Good Samaritan story. Um, does that speak to us, or are there things, you know, are there things that we hold in our hearts that close us off to others? And if, if we do, then the gospel really challenges that. Uh, so, you know, division is present in the church, it's present in society. Um, can we, can we get past those divisions? Can we find some principle of, of unity um, in spite of them? Um, or will we let those divisions define us? And he's working hard to, to not let that happen. Does the Catholic Church need this in order to stay relevant in a modern society where more and more this is just becoming the norm? It's becoming accepted. Is this, will this bring more to the Catholic Church? I, I don't think it's so much a question of, of, of conforming the modern society. I think, you know, when you look at how Catholics approach these issues, uh, there's, there's a deep sensibility that these people's relationships matter. And, and, and there, there's a Catholic sensibility to that, right? That the relationships are important, and, and we can't simply dismiss them because of the fact that they don't fit into the ideal. Um, you know, so uh, there are so many Catholics that are deeply conflicted about this, uh, and I think Francis is helping many of them see 
that that their concern for LGBTQ brothers and sisters is 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 one that fits deeply with with the thrust of the gospel. Vincent Miller has been with us, Professor Gudov Chair in Catholic Theology and Culture, University of Dayton. Vincent, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.